Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's home, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed him five hundred denarii, and the other fifty. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered. The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who he who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This reading is from Exodus chapter 14, verse 30 through Exodus 15, verse 2. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will extol him. For while we were still weak, Romans 5, 6 through 11, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. 1 Peter 1, 3-9 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, 
though for not now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that the inexpressible, that inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Well, as we look at God's word together this morning, again, we're going to focus on this text in Luke chapter 7 of this sinful woman who was forgiven. And so if you want to keep your Bibles open there, I will be uh, referring to it several times. Um, but just so we, again, understand the, the big picture of what's going on here in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36, we see that a Pharisee named Simon has invited Jesus to eat in his house. And Jesus comes into his house to eat a meal with, with Simon, this Pharisee, and yet in the middle of this meal, uh, they are interrupted, and they are interrupted by this woman who comes in and immediately starts to weep over Jesus' feet, and she breaks this flask of ointment, and she anoints his feet, and she wipes his feet with her hair, and in all these ways, uh, the, the Pharisee is just kind of startled at what's going on, and he's thinking that Jesus surely cannot be a prophet, he surely cannot be a great man, that he would let a sinful woman come into this house and do this sort of action to him. And yet, Jesus immediately corrects Simon, the the Pharisee, and this Pharisee is just someone who, who teaches the law of God. And Jesus corrects him, and he tells this Pharisee that he is the one who is in the wrong. And this woman is the one who is doing the right thing, even though she is a sinful woman. And so in uh, verse 44, it says that, Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. And then after that, he gets to what is really the the main point of this passage for us this morning. He says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, Loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And so what this is a picture of is that there can be people who are very righteous, like Simon this Pharisee, who can be very law-abiding citizens, who can do all the right things. And yet Jesus says that he wants no part of Simon this Pharisee who did not respect him. And yet there can also be people like this woman who Jesus himself even says her sins are many. 
that she is an unworthy person. And yet Jesus welcomes her into his family, welcomes her into fellowship with him. And so the question we have this morning is simply, how can that be? How can Jesus welcome a woman like this into fellowship with him while he keeps Simon, this Pharisee, at arm's length and does not welcome him? And in particular, the phrase I want to look at is in verse 50, the very last words that Jesus speaks to her. It says, and he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And so what this The question that this raises for us is just the enormous question of what is this faith that Jesus is talking about? Because Jesus says that it's her faith that has saved her. And so what is faith? How can we have faith that would be saving? And then the second question we have is what does it mean to be saved? Jesus tells this woman that her faith has saved her. And yet, of course, normally in everyday language, when we talk about being saved, We mean it in terms of being rescued from some sort of danger or distress. And yet this woman in this passage doesn't seem to be in imminent danger. And she seems to be relieved of distress. And so what does Jesus mean that her faith has saved her? What does it mean that we ourselves can be saved by faith? And so that's what I want to do in the rest of this message this morning is I want to answer those two questions. What is faith and what does it mean to be saved? Before I answer those questions, I do just want to point out how important these questions are. Just how critical they are for our lives today and for our life after we die. That truly there can be no more important question than these sorts of questions of what is faith? How can we have it? And what is salvation? How can I be saved? I love the the words of Jonathan Edwards, and I'm going to paraphrase him here a bit because he was writing in older English. But he says, Where is the excitement of our hearts proper, if not here? What else should make us more moved in our hearts than this? And what else can possibly be better than this? Can anything be set in our view greater and more important, anything more wonderful and surprising or more significant to our well-being? Can we suppose the wise creator gave us hearts and emotions and feelings to engage with other things, but to not engage with these questions? I would just propose to you that whatever in your life you have gotten excited about or interested in, whether it be news or politics or sports or video games or whatever it may be, that there is more excitement, more joy, more interest here in these questions of what is faith and what is salvation than there is in anything else in all the world. And I would just encourage you this morning that if you haven't looked into these things before, or maybe you have looked into these things, but they've gotten old-fashioned to you or old hat, well then give them a fresh look because you will not find greater joy than what can be found in drawing near to God himself in the way that he has shown us we can. And so, as we go into these enormous questions, just come in with that heart that there's nothing more important for us to ask about. There's no more important place to be, nothing more important to think about than this here. And so, again, our first question is, what is faith? 
Again, Jesus tells this woman that her faith has saved her. Well, there's a couple different ways that we could define faith. Of course, one way to do it is simply to give you the the dictionary definition. I could tell you what the word itself means. But a second option is that we could paint a picture for what faith actually looks like in action. After all, sometimes simply having a definition of something doesn't help very much if we can't really picture it. And I think what this passage actually does for us fundamentally is it gives us a picture of faith. So it may not define the word for us like a dictionary does, but it paints a picture of this woman and her response toward Jesus. And it tells us essentially that this is what faith is, that what this woman is doing toward Jesus, the way her heart is responding to him, that this is what faith is. But let me begin by going into what might be called the dictionary definition a little bit so we can understand it. And then we'll see how this woman is a picture of that sort of faith. Now, the the synonym most often used in the Bible for faith is simply the word belief. And that's what faith is most fundamentally. That most fundamentally, faith is simply belief. Now, to clear up one major misconception that I think we can often have, faith does not at all imply belief without evidence. So sometimes people can think that the difference between faith and belief is that faith is something that you believe, but just kind of because you feel like you have to. You don't have any evidence for it, but you need to, and so you just take it on faith. And meanwhile, we might think that a belief is something that you really have lots of evidence for, and so that is a sound belief. But in Scripture, this is not at all the difference between faith and belief. In fact, Scripture would encourage us, would tell us to not put our faith in something unless we have strong evidence for it. And so we have evidence for it, but faith ultimately is belief. But the real distinguishing mark between faith and just an average everyday belief is that faith is something that we are utterly confident in. It's something that we have no doubt about. That when we have faith in something, it means we are sure of it. We are confident in it. And this is not to say at all that it is wrong to doubt. Indeed, you could never come to a place of faith or a place of confidence if you didn't have questions answered, if you didn't ask the doubts that you had and, and hear what answers could be given. And so there's nothing wrong with doubt. But at the end of the day, if we are to have faith, then it means that our doubt has been displaced and we are trusting, we are resting in this truth that we believe. And so, faith is not your ordinary, everyday sort of belief. You know, you might believe that you have an appointment at 10 o'clock, or you might believe that you turned the lights off when you left the house, but these aren't the sort of things that you bank on, that you're saying, I'm 100% confident in these things, that I would die on this hill. No, faith is the sort of thing where you have really decided to stake everything you have on this belief. And then if you turn out to be wrong then you lose everything. Gambling is actually a really good example here. So in in the game of poker, you can look at the cards you have in your hand, right? And then you place bets based on the cards that you have in your hand. And of course, normally you want to just bet small amounts because your hand is probably going to be pretty mediocre. And this is more what our everyday type of beliefs are. We're, we're, we're kind of sure about things and we'll put a little bit of weight on them. 
But we're not going to bet the farm on things like that. But then, of course, sometimes in poker you'll get a hand that just looks so good that in your mind you think there's no way anybody else could have a better hand than I have. And you're just so confident that this is a good hand that you do what's called going all in. It means that all the money that you have on the table, you put it all down on this one hand because you are so sure that this hand is the best hand that there is. And that is a picture of faith. That when we're so confident that what we've encountered, that this truth that we've found really is the truth, that we're willing to put all of our chips in, all of our life, everything we have, we give over to this thing. That that is the moment of faith. That is the moment of true and real belief. And yes, it's true that sometimes we might have to kind of uh, fake it till you make it, so to speak. You know, we we know that we should believe something and we should have confidence, but we don't. And so we're going to act like it anyways. And yes, that is a kind of faith. But ultimately, the faith that we want is not the faith that's simply a faith of performance. What we want ultimately is a faith where we really, in our hearts, are fully convinced that what we've seen, that what we believed is the truth. And there's no way that we could be wrong. Now, before we look specifically at the example of the woman in this passage, I do want to point out that faith in this way is what every Christian is called to. And in fact, if if you do not have faith in God in this way, then you are not a Christian. As a Christian, your whole life is supposed to be staked upon the truth that the Bible teaches. Staked upon the truth that Jesus really is the Son of God, that he really did die for our sins, and that he really did rise up from the grave. And that if those things are not true, then we should recognize that we have lost everything. That our whole lives turn out to be foolish and wrong. And Scripture itself talks about this. This is the Apostle Paul writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And listen to this last verse. He says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Do you hear how the Apostle Paul himself is saying that he stakes his whole life upon the truth of the Bible? Upon the truth that Jesus really did come and really did die and really did rise again. And if he turns out to be wrong about these things, then he is an utter fool and his life has been wasted. If you have not come to Christ in this way, And let me encourage you to come in this way this morning. Put your faith in him. Bank everything on him. And I assure you that he will not let you down. He is able to hold all of your trust. He is able to keep all of his promises. 
But of course, when we see faith in this way, we also do see that we all lack faith in one way or another. I myself do not have faith in God the way that I should. There are times when I want to diversify my portfolio, so to speak. (laughs) I don't want to bank everything on God. I want to say, well, if God turns out to not be right, then I'd really like to have a backup plan. But if that's my mentality, then I am not living by faith. I do this most of all, I think, with my money. Scripture tells me that God is wealthy, that he is good, that he can care for all of my needs. Jesus himself says that we should consider the flowers and consider the birds, how God takes care of them. And he'll take care of us much more so because we are more valuable than many birds and more valuable than many flowers. And so I could trust that God would take care of me all the time. And yet financially, I always want to say, well, I'm not really sure that God will take care of me. I think I need to save a little bit more. I need to have a little more in the bank just in case something goes wrong. I know God wants me to be generous to the poor. I know God wants me to care for this person, but, you know, I really have to protect myself. That is a constant temptation for me, and it reflects that I do not have faith in God the way that I should. I'm not banking on him alone. And so you see, it's not good enough for us to merely believe that God exists or to merely believe that he is good or loving or kind. The question for us is, are we so sure of it? Are we so sure that God is real and that Jesus really did rise from the dead that we are willing to stake our lives on it? All the way from our daily decisions to our decisions about food and money and sex and politics and everything else. Are we willing to give everything to him? That is the way that we can come to Christ and that we can experience salvation. And so, using this definition of faith, this understanding of faith as, as confidence, confidence that's so strong that, you, that you're willing to stake everything on it, let's look again at the example of this woman and see how she herself exhibited faith. Again, she was a sinful woman. She wasn't a great human being or a great saint. And yet, when she comes to Jesus, notice how she responds to him. So first, in verse 37, it says, Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Beloved, this is such a beautiful picture of faith. This is clearly a woman who was utterly confident that Jesus would welcome her, that Jesus could forgive all of her sins, that Jesus could make her new. If she were not utterly confident, she would not have left behind whatever else she was doing and come over to this house with her ointment. She would not have a heart that just overflows in sorrow over her sin and joy and her welcome at Jesus Christ, such that she could weep and wet his feet with her tears and wipe his feet with her hair. 
Clearly, in her heart and in her mind, she was utterly confident that Jesus really was who he said he was. And because she was utterly confident, she knew that she could surrender her heart to him, that she could give up this precious ointment that she had and this precious flask, and that she could come and look like a fool in front of everybody else. Because she knew that she would be welcomed by Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of all. And so in this way, we see that her belief, that her confidence, led to this incredible outpouring of affection and emotion. And it will be the same for us, beloved, that if we truly have faith in Jesus Christ, then we ourselves want to show the same sort of love for him because we really believe all that he's done And we truly believe all that he is. So now that we've seen clearly what faith in Jesus Christ is, then the second question we have to answer is what is salvation? Again, verse 50, Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What does it mean that this woman is saved? Well, we know that this salvation must connect in some way to the forgiveness of sins. Verse 47, again, Jesus says, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And then again in verse 48, it says that he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And so we know that it's because of the forgiveness of sin that she was so filled with love for Jesus. Jesus says that her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And that's why she loves much, because she recognizes that she was forgiven much. And so this salvation, this rescue that the woman feels has something to do with the forgiveness of her sins. And I think she came to Jesus because she realized that Jesus could save her in two different ways with regard to her sin. First, she realized that Jesus could take away the power of sin from her life so that she could be free from it. She was miserable in her sin and she wanted to be done with it. And yet it was so ingrained in her lifestyle. It was so identified with who she was. Everybody else is calling her a sinner. She did not feel she could change. And yet with Jesus, she felt, I have the power to be a different person. I have the power to change. So this is the first way that she realized she could be rescued from somewhere that she did not want to be, something that she hated. But second, I think she also realized that Jesus could take away the punishment of sin. She realized that her sins were indeed wrong and they required some sort of punishment. And this frightened her because she knew that she could not take away her own sins. She could not make up for the wrongs that she had done. And so she knew that Jesus could free her from this terror of death. There's this great old hymn that perhaps most of you know, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing, And it has this wonderful line in it that says that he, that is Jesus, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He breaks the power of canceled sin. I think this line expresses both of these realities that this woman saw. 
Number one, that the power of sin is broken. He breaks the power of canceled sin. So the power of sin is broken. She doesn't have to be a sinner anymore. Everybody doesn't have to look at her in that way anymore. She can be a new person. But second, the line says he breaks the power of canceled sin. So not only does she have power to change, but her sins can be totally washed away. They can be canceled. They can be forgiven. They can be removed from her as far as the east is from the west, as it says in the book of Psalms. And so Jesus offers both of these things. He saves us from the penalty of sin and that we all know that deep down our sins do require a reckoning. Again, maybe we don't feel this way for our own sins, but certainly when we look at others and the sins they commit, we always want to say that sin deserves some form of punishment, some form of reckoning. And because we have that instinct about other sins, surely we know that the same is true of our own sins. That there is a reckoning coming for us for every wrong that we have done. In Hebrews 9, verse 27, it says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Or in Matthew chapter 3, this is John the Baptist speaking of Jesus, and he says of Jesus that his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Beloved, Jesus is returning, and when he returns, he does not return for mercy. He returns for judgment against all who have done evil. And we should rejoice in this because it means the end to all evil, but we should also fear this because we know that each of us have done wrongs that are worthy of punishment. And so Romans 5, 9, which we read just at the beginning of the message Romans 5.9 says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. You hear those words, saved by Jesus from the wrath of God. This, this word saved here in Romans is the exact same word as the word that's in Luke. And so this woman saw first and foremost that she could be saved from God's wrath. She could be saved from whatever punishment may come due to her sins that she could experience complete and utter forgiveness. And that is why she had so much joy that she could weep over Jesus' feet. That he would free her from the penalty of all of her sins. But second, she knew that since she had been freed from this penalty of sin, that she was also freed from the power of sin. And beloved, this is the ultimate point of Jesus' resurrection that we celebrate this morning, that we celebrate every Sunday. That in Jesus rising from the dead, what he's done is he's shown that the power of death is broken and that we can have new life as we trust in him. And this new life comes with the power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. And that power is a power to fight sin and to live for righteousness. Hebrews 2 verse 14 and 15 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That's saying that Jesus came down in flesh and blood. 
that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You see, all of us, because we know this punishment is lingering over our head, we so often feel like, well, what's the point in changing now? I've already messed up. I've already done wrong. Even if I were to change today, it's not like those wrong things would be taken away. And so in that way, the fear of death rules over our lives and we feel unable to change, unable to make a transformation. And yet this tells us that we, from being freed from the fear of death, knowing that all of our sins can be taken away, that now we really can have a fresh start. We can be new people, just as Christ himself was a new person when he rose from the dead. That we can have that same new and resurrection life in us this morning. And so ultimately, what is salvation? Again, this woman in this passage paints a beautiful picture for us. Salvation here and now is exactly what this woman experienced. She experienced overflowing joy, overflowing love, overflowing generosity. She had lived a life formerly where she was afraid of death, where she was in bondage to sin, where she could not change, where she was miserable in her way of life. And so salvation today was her feeling free. In fact, feeling so free that she could come into this dinner and interrupt it and give her thanks to Jesus with her tears and with her ointment. That this is a picture of true freedom. But I think we we all have this idea of what perfect joy is, of what perfect bliss is. The perfect joy, perfect bliss is when we are so enjoying something, we are so in the moment that we forget about everything else that is around us and we just experience the glory of whatever it is that we're doing. I think of someone like a a musical performer who when he's on stage, he just, just gets so lost in the music and in the joy of playing that it's like the audience isn't even there. He just loves it so much. Or maybe if you're an outdoorsy type person, it's like if you were on a boat fishing and you catch this glorious fish and at the same time you see some bald eagle swoop down right in front of you and you feel like, how can life get any better than this? You're just so lost in the moment. Or if you're a kid, maybe it's like you have the birthday party that you've always wanted. All your friends are there and you're doing laser tag and whatever else it is. It's like the pinnacle of life. And that's what this woman is experiencing here with Jesus. That the whole world around her has faded away. And now she has come to see this one who her heart loves more than anyone else, more than anything else. The one who has freed her from everything. She has found joy. And in that way, she has been saved from a life that is difficult and painful. We all know the difficulty and pain of life. She's been freed from it because she has found joy in Jesus Christ. And we also know that her salvation does not end there, but she is indeed freed from the wrath of God. That when it comes time for her to die, she no longer needs to worry about what will come after death. 
Because she has been forgiven by the Savior of the world, by God himself. And so she has joy today, and she will have even greater joy forever and ever as she enjoys the presence of her Savior for all eternity. Beloved, this is the promise of Easter for us. That because Christ has been raised, we also can have confidence, can can have hope that we ourselves will be raised to live with him forever in joy and in glory. The life that we live right now is short and momentary. It's passing away like a shadow, Scripture says. The life that is to come is eternal. It will never fade away. And so how glorious would it be to have a foretaste right now of that joy that we can have forever and ever, and then forever and ever to enjoy the presence of God, the creator of all things, the one who is love, who is always overflowing with joy to know him forever. Well, beloved, I want us to enter into a time of prayer now. Pray that we would come and know God. Pray that God would give us faith so that we can trust in him, so that we can experience salvation. And pray that this faith would indeed be realized by everyone in the city around us, by everyone indeed to the very ends of the earth. And so I just invite you to join me now in prayers where we realize that we don't measure up to this word of God, but also in prayers that this word of God would go forth from here.